0: Or do you believe the, the words of that song? That Jesus is a friend and not a foe? An advocate and not an adversary? I mean, maybe you have a hard time believing it because of what you're going through in life right now. But what the Bible continues to, to pound home to us is that Jesus Christ is not against you, friends, right. but for you. That Jesus' heart is to help you, not to hurt you. I mean, that's in essence what the gospel writer Matthew has been showing us the past couple of years as we've walked through his gospel. A, a, a Christ, a, a king, who has left his throne in heaven to come and help the helpless. A a king who doesn't see his subjects as so beneath him and so utterly despicable that he turns away from them, but a king who sees his people suffering and moves towards them. So when we sing songs like, what a friend we have in Jesus, we're not singing a song about someone else's experience. We're singing a song about what the scriptures say about our Savior. Jesus is a friend. Jesus is an advocate. Jesus is a king who cares. Jesus is a savior who saves. Jesus is for you today and will be with you forevermore. And so turn to him and don't turn away from him. Because turning away from him is the worst thing you could possibly do. That's something of what we see in our passage this morning as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. And what will be the last section we'll cover for at least a few months and we'll jump back into Matthew at the beginning of next year in hopes of finishing the book all right so if you have your Bibles return with you to Matthew chapter 23 this morning we're going to cover the entire chapter Matthew chapter 23 I'll read verses 1 through 39 then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seats." and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. And neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. And the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, then he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice mercy and faithfulness these you ought to have done without neglecting the others you blind guides straining out a net and swallowing a camel woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered you, your children, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's what I think is the the main idea, the main point of Matthew chapter 23. So the main point of our passage this morning. Religious duty that is misdirected, misapplied, and that misses Jesus won't bring rewards but judgment. Religious duty that is misdirected, aimed at the wrong place, misapplied from God's word, and that misses Jesus, the fulfillment of all righteousness. That kind of religious duty won't bring you rewards, but only judgment. As we walk through this chapter this morning, I think we can pull from it three prohibitions, three things that Jesus is calling us not to do or not to be. And those will serve as the three points of the sermon. Number one, don't be conformed to religious folks. All right. See that in verses 1 through 12. Number two, don't be self-conceived or self-deceived into thinking religion will save you from God's judgment. Don't be self-deceived into thinking religion will save you from God's judgment. We see that in verses 13 through 36. And point number three, don't be hard-hearted in rejecting God's Savior. We see that in verses 37 through 39. Number one, don't be conformed to religious folks. Number two, don't be self-deceived into thinking religion will save you from God's judgment. And number three, don't be hard-hearted in rejecting God's Savior. First, don't be conformed to religious folks. Now, perhaps you're observing and you hear that language of do not be conformed. And you think of the Apostle Paul's charge in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 there, Paul tells Roman believers not to be conformed to this world. The Bible often uses the term world to to talk about not a geographical place, but to talk about the world system set up in opposition to God and against his purposes. The world with all its false ideologies that, that put man in the center over and above God. The world with all its loose living, outright rejecting what God has commanded. Paul told the Roman believers, don't be conformed to this world. The world is dangerous. The world is an outright rebellion against God. But there's another danger that's present. It's not just the world that rejects God, but it's also religious folk. Who can set themselves up against the Lord too. Folks who got God on their lips but greed in their hearts. Who thirsty for money and acclaim and recognition and who use religion as a convenient vehicle to get what they really value. Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't be conformed to them. Notice Jesus here at the start of verse 23 is addressing the crowds and his disciples. And that's what verse 1 tells us. The setting is still the temple courtyard, where Jesus has just gone through three rounds of verbal conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They tried to entrap him by asking three separate questions in, in an attempt to make him stumble in the people's eyes. But instead of him stumbling and being silenced, he flipped the script, as we saw last week and asked them a question that left them all silenced, that shut them all up. Yet he, the real religious leader, was still speaking. All right. He's speaking to win those around him, the crowds and his disciples. He's speaking to warn those around him. This is something of a discipleship lesson. There are dangers, Jesus is saying, that that I want to keep you from. And they don't just exist out there among the unbelievers, the heathens, the the pagans, the the atheists, the agnostics, the the secular universities, the the liberal media, the, the mockers of religion. Those I want to keep you from imitating are right here in your midst. The seemingly conservative, cut it straight live by the word, not by the world, religious leaders of the day. The scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious party. And the scribes were those whose job it was to interpret and to teach the law, many of whom belonged to the Pharisee party. Jesus says in verse 2, they sit in Moses' seat. Not a literal chair, but... They have assumed Moses' role as, as those who teach and guide the people on how to live by the law. In that sense, and in as much as they accurately teach what Moses taught, what God gave Moses to teach, that Jesus tells, them to, tells the people to, to do what, what they say. The problem, of course, is as Jesus has already laid out earlier in this book, the Pharisees don't just teach what God commanded through Moses but have added in their own traditions. So Jesus' charge here to do whatever they tell you is limited to what is true from scriptures. But what you must not do is what the scribes and the Pharisees actually do. Don't follow their practices, for they preach but do not practice. You see, friends, the the problem of hypocrisy, hypocrisy by leaders is an old problem. I wonder if that humbles you this morning. Maybe you walked around acting as if you're the only one with enough spiritual keenness to detect fakeness. To notice people who don't practice what they preach. And maybe it's caused you to jump around from church to church. Or not to commit to any one church. Or not to trust in any spiritual leadership. Or to consider leaving Christianity all together but Jesus was calling out hypocrisy 2,000 years ago That's right. and notice what he called people to do is not to stop following the faith but to stop following those who are fake All right. mm-hmm. you see Satan would love to use others failures to cause you to fall away as well but don't go for his tricks by straying away from God And don't go for his tricks by staying with the status quo, just because these are the religious leaders. That's to say, don't allow others' bad practices to become normalized in your mind, excusing their actions because of their status. No, Jesus means to call out the scribes and the Pharisees whom most people in Jerusalem would have esteemed. They respected these religious leaders. But Jesus means to call them out, to put them and their practices on blast for their behavior, which was inconsistent and hypocritical and ungodly. Jesus wants to show folks who these people really are. And so he goes into specifics in verses 4 through 7. Verse 4 says, They lay heavy burdens on folks but they don't help them when they struggle under them. They loaded people up with extra biblical commands as a way of applying the Old Testament laws to specific life situations. But in doing so, they just made life harder and harder and harder and more oppressive for people. Contrast their ways with Jesus' ways. Remember Jesus' words earlier in this book in, in Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 through 30 when he said come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burden is is light Jesus wasn't saying come to me for rest from the heavy demands of the law He was speaking to a people who'd been weighed down by all the other commands, all the other duties the religious leaders had added to the law. You you see, one of the marks of religion, of false religion, that is, is that it adds stuff for folks to do in in order to justify themselves, in order to please God, in order to, to truly live a godly life. As if what God demands and as if what God has done is not enough. Now, now some people think that that any duty is a heavy duty, a heavy burden. They claim that any command or any charge is too hard to bear. We need to be careful that in not following or submitting to folks who place extra biblical commands on us, that we don't also refuse to submit to those who place biblical commands on us. Amen. Friends, there's a difference between an unbiblical heavy burden and a biblical Christian duty. All right. So friends, when, when we as pastors or as members of this church charge each other to, to come to church every single week, mm. please don't counter y'all placing heavy burdens on me. No, we placing biblical commands all right, on you all right. as a professing Bible-believing Christian. Amen. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Amen. We merely command what the Bible commands right. or, or when we charge each other to be hospitable or to inconvenience ourselves for one another. We do so not because we're heaving unbiblical, uh, extra-biblical burdens on you, but biblical commands. The Bible charges us to be hospitable. Amen. The Bible calls us to count others as more significant than ourselves. What would be extra-biblical would be prescribing exactly how many times you must open your home, All right. how many days in your schedule you must fill up with others. How exactly caring for others must look in your life. Be careful not to follow folks who force more than the Bible demands, like the scribes and the Pharisees. But also, don't fail to do what the Bible commands in the process. Another trait that Jesus means to keep his people from following other religious leaders is seeking esteem from others. He says in verse 5 that the scribes and Pharisees do all their deeds to be seen by others. Their behavior is in direct conflict to the kind of righteous life that Jesus described on the Sermon on the Mount. When he instructed his disciples not to practice their righteousness before men, but to, to give and to pray and to fast in secret so that their heavenly Father who sees in secret would reward them. But the Pharisees forego a heavenly reward in favor of earthly acknowledgements. Uh, and Jesus gives some specific examples of some of their actions. Look there at the end of verse five. They make their phloracteries broad. None of us know what a phylactery is, right? Don't fake. <laughs> so you gotta look that up, what, what is a phylactery It's a fun word to say. Uh, A floractory was a a leather case that that contained key scriptures from the Old Testament. People would wear it, or these uh, religious leaders would wear it around their arm or around their foreheads. It was a literal act of obedience to the Old Testament's figurative command in places like Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 8 to bind God's word as a sign on your hand and as frontlets before your eyes. The religious leaders were so holy that they actually bound God's word on their foreheads and around their arms. They made their phylacteries broad. We got a big case with a bunch of scriptures that we carry around all the time. Well, look at how in tune to God's word we always are. But it was all for show. As was their demand, as we see in verses 6 and 7, to have the the best seats at at feasts and in the synagogue and to be greeted by all the people, to be recognized as rabbis. The beginning of verse 6 says they, they loved these things. Their ministry was motivated by a love of self rather than a love for God and others that Jesus previously said was most important. Uh, Again, Jesus' charge to the people, his charge to us is don't follow their example. Don't value people's praise. Specifically in verse 8, he tells his followers not to seek after and accept all these honorific titles and the acclaim they bring. He says in verse 8, but you, as opposed to the religious leaders, you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for so you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, no, Jesus here is not explicitly and widely forbidding any reference to these titles. I mean, in Ephesians chapter 4, we read that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave as gifts to the church teachers, all right? And, and earlier in Matthew, he, he, he quotes the fifth commandment and about honoring earthly fathers. Right, so Jesus doesn't say, hey, never call anyone teacher or never call anyone father. That's, that's not the point here. The point here is, is don't seek titles that exalt yourselves. Right? Don't give praise to others that alone belongs to God. You, you know, often titles are, are given to show honor in a biblical way. To follow the biblical command to, to give honor to whom honor is due. And that's well and fine. And so some of you can't bring yourselves to just call me Omar. It's got to be Pastor Omar. All right, that's your way of honoring the, the office the Lord has called me to here. That's totally fine. Keep doing that if, if, if you like. That's fine. But it's different if I go around demanding that you must call me pastor at all times or that anyone else in any other setting must call me Pastor Omar. On the basketball court, good move, Pastor Omar. Uh, Don't watch it now, come on. I got some J's on today. It'd be different if if, any time someone lists my name, I demand you must put my divinity degrees behind it. Then I think we're crossing into the territory that Jesus forbids here. Using titles as a way to exalt self. Jesus says, Don't exalt yourself as a teacher or a preacher. There's one teacher. All right. He is. And in Christ and under Christ, all our roles have been relativized. Hmm. We're all now on the same level under this same king as brothers and sisters. We don't need to kind of vie for, for kind of top spot. We are in the same family not to fight for status or claim, but to follow King Jesus. None of us better or above another. Jesus alone is the head. Amen. And so if you must boast in someone, boast in him. Well, as he's expressed other times in this book and says again in verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. but Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Don't follow, don't imitate, don't be conformed to religious folks. That's the message of verses 1 through 12. Why? Because their religion won't save them. That brings us to point number two. Don't be self-deceived into thinking that religion will save you from God's wrath. Don't be self-deceived into thinking that religion will save you from God's wrath. Although you don't see the word mentioned, judgment is the theme all throughout verses 13 through 36. You see it in the word or phrase that is mentioned over and over and over. Seven times we see this phrase, woe to you. You look in your Bibles there, a good practice if you're maybe a younger person, right, of, of how to read the Bible is to mark up your Bible. So maybe you take a, a pen or pencil and you just circle all the repeated phrases or terms. So you see there in verse 13 and in verse 15 and in verse 16 and in verse 23 and in verse 25 and in verse 27 and in verse 29. Woe to you. Woe to you is a pronouncement of, of judgment. But maybe you're thinking only God can judge me. Well, if that's your mindset Please don't tune these verses out simply because Jesus is speaking. Why? Because Jesus is God. Remember, that was the point of Jesus' question regarding the identity of the Messiah, of the Christ in the, the last few verses we looked at last week of chapter 22. He implied that the Messiah is not only the human descendant of David, but also the divine son of God of the same essence as God the Father. And so just as God in the Old Testament, uh, through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5, pronounces judgment upon the people of Israel. So now, God in the New Testament, not through a prophet, but himself in the person of Jesus Christ, does what he can rightfully do as God. Pronounce judgment here upon the scribes and the Pharisees. And notice he pronounces this judgment directly to them. Wherein in verses 1 through 12, he he warned the crowds and disciples about these religious leaders. Here he targets his words directly to them. Now, were the scribes and the Pharisees the only ones guilty of sin in Israel? Of course not. But as the leaders in Israel, they were held to a higher standard as those in authority to teach and to train the people and to set an example for them. It's the same dynamic we see in other places. In James chapter 3, verse 1, it tells us not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So, so friends, as great a moment as, as we experienced last Sunday when we installed our brother warner as an elder to serve with me as pastors of this church, just know that it's not a kind of glamorous gig. Mm. It is a weighty task to tenderly care for God's sheep, a task we take very seriously, a task that God takes very seriously and will judge us for abusing our authority. For failing to care for and to shepherd you well. So, so, saints, frankly, that means a couple of things for you practically. First, you must pray for us. Amen. We are weak shepherds in need of the chief shepherd. Amen. We are weak shepherds who need the help of our brothers and sisters here to hold us up. So that we don't fail in the task of caring for you. Pray that we wouldn't meet the the, the same kind of condemnation that religious leaders here meet for either cowardly failing to confront you in sin or for being too overbearing, putting extra biblical demands on you to keep you from sin. It also means that when we command you to do something from God's word, that it's not just that we're targeting you or just trying to boss you around. Is that we understand that God is going to hold us accountable for your care. All right. And so you're going to just have to continually grow in trusting us and submitting to us. Amen. I mean, that's what Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Amen. So friends, help us help you by submitting to our authority. For we must give an account to God one day. And we do not want to hear God's condemnation. We don't want to hear God saying, woe to you, Warner! Woe to you, Omar. So two ways you can help us in that is to obey us and pray for us. Anyways, here in this account with these religious leaders, it seems that They've moved beyond correction. They've been acting corruptly, and so Jesus lobs these seven pronouncements of judgment upon them. With most of them, I think, fitting into into pairs. And the seventh and last judgment serving as a kind of culmination of all their wrongs. So so we see three pairs here, and then one final judgment or woe. We see the first pair of judgment, the, the first pair of woes in verses 13 and 15. The first and second woes. Jesus pronounces judgment in these verses because the scribes and the Pharisees keep people from heaven. Now look at verse 13. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The term kingdom of heaven here is, is used as a metaphor for salvation, for eternal life in heaven. If anyone would be there, if anyone would want others to be there, you'd think it would be the religious leaders. But Jesus says that they, in essence, restrict access. They shut the door to heaven and put a padlock on it, keeping themselves and others from going there. How do they shut the door to the kingdom of heaven? by failing to rightly acknowledge the king of heaven. They failed to recognize Jesus for who he was and to worship him as the Messiah, the king who'd come from heaven to earth to establish his reign and to welcome sinners like us into his kingdom through repentance and through faith. But instead of repenting, they rejected Jesus. Instead of having faith in him, they fired insults at him. And they taught others to do the same, to view Jesus not as the Messiah, but as a madman, as a maniac, his miracles fueled by the prince of demons, they said, Satan himself. And so they and those who listened to them would be shut off, shut out of eternal life that they should have longed to enter. Friends, everybody who rejects Jesus for who he truly is, the divine Son of God, the one and only Savior who lived and died and rose again to save us, everyone who rejects that Jesus will meet the same fate, will be kept out of the kingdom of heaven. It's the same theme addressed in the second woe in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. A proselyte is a convert. The scribes and Pharisees would would zealously go anywhere, any distance, at any personal expense to make a single convert. You, You see, Satan sends missionaries too. They don't dress in dragon suits trying to draw you away from religion altogether. Uh, They come dressed in the long robes of the scribes and Pharisees or or the white short-sleeved shirts of Mormons or or, or the jazzed-up dress clothes of Jehovah's Witnesses. They they come with another religion, a religion that promotes one's own works while minimizing the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ as all-sufficient. The Pharisees might win a convert, but not to Jesus. Rather, to Phariseeism, to rejecting Jesus as the Christ and being burdened with extra-biblical requirements and burdens to earn their own salvation, a salvation they could never get apart from Christ. They were winning people a one-way ticket to hell. Woe to these scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, for doing so. Are we guilty of any of, of their ways or their actions ourselves? Effectively shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces? And Maybe you don't reject Jesus like the religious leaders did, but perhaps by your attitude at work, your actions at home, you make people want no part of your Jesus. Not if his followers act like that behave like that, I wonder, would Jesus have any woes for you in this area if he confronted you today? We see the next set of woes in verses 16 through 24. Woes 3 and 4. And these woes are pronounced upon the scribes and Pharisees for neglecting the weightier matters of the law. We, We see Jesus explicitly say that in verse 23 with the fourth woe. But I think that that undergirds the third woe as well. Notice in verses 16 through 22, Jesus lays down the third woe because the scribes and Pharisees are super concerned about distinguishing which oaths had to be honored, which vows had to be kept. In verse 16, they say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, He is bound by his oath. And they would hold similar standards to to other oaths made by objects in the temple, like the altar. But as was often the case, they were misguided and focusing so much on these little superficial particulars that they missed the greater principle of the law. Uh, The weight of the law was not in what you pledge an oath by that would make it binding. Mm. The weight of the law was that you should tell the truth at all times. Be honest in all your dealings. So much so that you don't need to vow by anything. I mean, the ninth commandment tells us, do not bear false witness. Don't lie. Instead of observing and obeying the the weightier matter of the law, they sought to weigh which words had to be kept. Now, before we get too... Self-righteous Jesus could judge us similarly, couldn't He? I mean, have you you ever told your kids something, and they actually hold you to your word? They come to you, Daddy. You promised to take me to the park today. And what kind of games do we play? I didn't promise we'd go to the park. I said we'd go to the park. There's a difference. Really? We often look for loopholes or surface things like which exact words we said, rather than owning up to the biblical command to tell the truth always and to keep our word all the time. In a similar vein, we we see the the neglect of of more central, more weighty commands of the Bible in favor for superficial concerns in the fourth world in verse 23. Look there with me, Verse 23. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guys, straining out the net and swallowing a camel. The scribes and Pharisees scrupulously kept the law, Or so they would say. They obeyed the Bible's commands, which is why they tithe the crops of mint and dill and cumin. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22, God commanded the people of Israel, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. They were to give a tenth of the crops that came to them back to the Lord. And the religious leaders here do so faithfully, Jesus says. They tithe even of these most tiny plants. This little dill, this little mint, this little cumin, they tithe a tenth of this tiny plant and probably felt superior in doing so until Jesus speaks to them. They tithe of these tiny plants but totally miss doing the massive other duties of the law." They neglected the weightier matters of the law, Jesus says. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. They should have tied. That's fine, Jesus says, but not at the exclusion of the more important matters of how they treated people. Jesus' judgment here it sounds a lot like the judgment God handed down through the prophet Micah that we observed last year when we studied that book together. In Micah chapter 6, verses 7 through 8, God gives the requirements to his people of of how they should live. Uh, What he requires is not simply the ritual and routine sacrifices of of thousands of rams or even 10,000s of rivers of oil. No, what does God require of you? Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. We are called to be a just people, to uphold justice, to treat one another equitably with the esteem and honor fitting creatures created in God's image. And anytime we don't do that, through our speech or through our actions or through policies or through laws, whether implicit (laughs) or explicit, the people of God, more than anyone else, should be upset. Because injustices are insults to God, Amen. because injustices against people are perversions of God's word. We've been commanded to love our neighbors, not to lord over them. Right. We've been commanded to love our neighbors, not to discriminate against them or to mistreat them. Amen. Now, now someone our day say we, we should leave these things alone. Any talk of justice, any talk of mercy ministry is leaning towards having a social gospel. But I want to say that any true gospel must touch down in how you treat people in society, must engage with society. When you see and believe what Jesus Christ has done for you, how he who legitimately is so far above us, did not look down on us in scorn but came down to us to save us how he who was so exalted over us humbled himself for us it humbles us and causes us not to exalt ourselves over anyone else not to treat anyone else as below or inferior to us not to see anyone as worthless Because Jesus, who saw all the filth of our sins, did not see us as worthless, but worthy of dying for. That pushes you into a humble, loving posture of wanting to see people valued and actively seeking their good, no matter what color they are, or what quality of education they have, or what corner of the world they come from. That's not a social gospel. That's a gospel that goes social. A gospel that fleshes itself out in concerns for the society that God has placed you in. Jesus exposes here that you can focus on doing biblical things and yet miss doing bigger biblical things. For the Pharisees, it was a tight adherence to tithing while totally neglecting the well-being of others. What's our tendency? What's your tendency? Maybe we tithe or give money to the church, but don't actively engage and care for our brothers and sisters here. Don't check on them or pray for them. We ought to do the former while not neglecting the weightier duty of the latter. Or maybe you study God's word day and night. You know all the theological terms. But you don't treat your co-workers kindly. Mm. Or you hold hatred or animus in your heart toward people of other ethnicities, or of your own ethnicity. Or you show apathy towards any injustices done to them. Now, what happened in your heart when you heard news last weekend of a white supremacist targeting a black neighborhood in Buffalo and gunning down 10 people in the supermarket? What happened in your heart when you heard news of a black man in Dallas two weeks ago opening fire in a salon in that city's Koreatown, wounding three Asian women in what seems to be a racially motivated crime? What happens in your heart when you hear someone in your family or on your job make disparaging and and debasing remarks about white people because it's okay because they ain't around? Do you not care about those things? Are you dismissive of them? Do you have a just me and my Bible mindset? Friends, be careful. It could be that we have narrowed our obedience to God's word to one specific area or to mere uh, obedience or adherence to the minutia of the law while neglecting weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. As Chris prayed earlier, it's always easier to check lists of religious duties than to love people and to seek their good. But Jesus will judge us if we're merely concerned with checking a box to say we paid our tithes. We read our Bibles, we have told 10 people about Jesus, but have not truly cared about people. Saints, that's not the kind of congregation we are aiming to be. I'm thankful that that's not the kind of congregation that we are. I'm thankful for many of you who have modeled the kind of holistic ministry that Jesus calls us to hear. You're very intent on carefully obeying all of God's word, including the weightier matters of it. And so you read your Bibles and you volunteer at the Forestville Pregnancy Center, counseling women and couples to keep their babies. You give offerings to the church and you offer to help those in need. You prioritize gathering with God's people and you pray for and work for the rights of all people. Saints, those are good things. Those are God-honoring things. Things that will keep you from pronouncements of Jesus' judgments. Like those he levies here upon the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, there's a third set of woes or judgments we see Jesus pronounce in this passage. We find it in verses 25 through 28, the, the fifth and the sixth woes. And these judgments are pronounced upon the religious leaders because they cared only about external and not internal purity. They cared about cleaning up the, the outside, but not addressing the, the inner man. That's Jesus' point in, in pronouncing the fifth woe in verse 25. And the scribes and Pharisees clean the, the outside of cups and plates to make sure they, they were clean and wouldn't introduce any defilement in their bodies when they ate or drank from them that would make them unclean. But Jesus has said elsewhere, it's not what goes into the body that makes you unclean, but what comes from within. Inside, we read here, these men are full of greed and self-indulgence, but they're doing nothing To deal with the deep uncleanness within. Similarly, in in verses 27 and 28, the sixth woe focuses on on the scribes and Pharisees' infatuation with external things. Jesus says they are like whitewashed tombs. These tombs would be plastered bright white to alert people not to touch them. Because if you touch the tomb of a dead person, it will make you unclean. But that bright white outside couldn't mask the dark contents inside. There was a dead person in there. So it is with the Pharisees. Verse 28 says, they outwardly appear sparkling white. They appear righteous to others, but within they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, it describes all of us in a sense. We all outwardly look better than we actually are. Amen. Because inwardly, there is a spiritual corpse that is apart from Christ. Uh, naturally, we are all born dead in our sins. Inwardly filled with all kinds of lawlessness. And we cannot clean ourselves up. That's why we need the new, Jesus, new life that Jesus alone brings. He suffered and died on the cross for our sins and for all our guilt. And he rose from the grave for our justification. And he calls us all now to turn from our sins in repentance and faith with the promise of a new heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. My friends, if you want to be clean, not just on the outside, but want inner change and renewal, want spiritual life instead of spiritual death, then right now what you must do is call upon Jesus. Say to him right now in your seat, Jesus, I know myself to be a wicked sinner, but I know you to be a wonderful savior. I know that I am dead in my sins, but you lived and died for my sins, so make me alive. Ask Jesus to give you life today, and he will do it. Come talk to me after service. Talk to anyone around you. We would love to tell you more about how to find new life in King Jesus. Some of us have already made a profession of faith in Jesus. We said we trust in him. And we even live like we do on Sundays. But our church clothes and our church tones and our arm around our, spice, uh, around our spouse here. Mm. Or our clean speech here. Or our clean browsing history here. Hide the real you. Well, they hide the real you to everyone except God. All right. You might appear righteous before others, but God knows if we're full of hypocrisy. And he will judge us for it. So friends, better to just be transparent and let all your junk out now. You know, that's one reason why we have a a corporate prayer of confession like the one Chris led us in earlier, right? We know we've got some mess. We know we got a lot of sin that still lingers in us. And we think the worst thing we can do is to conceal it. Instead, we want to confess it. For if we confess our sins, then the Bible promises that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us yes. from all our unrighteousness, to cleanse us from within. Yes. We've got to stop trying to look clean on the outside. Jesus wants you to be clean on the inside. And the only way to be clean on the inside is to give all your dirt to him. All right. We're going to have to kill that kind of quietness about who we really are. That quietness is going to kill us. That's why we got to have deep and transparent relationships with each other. If you only present the, the best version of you, the Instagram version of your marriage, the Instagram ver- version of your parenting, the Instagram version of your struggle in singleness, the Instagram version of your walk with Christ, you know, with the, the coffee cups on the table and the Bible open to Psalm 23 and all marked up. That's how you really are, right? You ain't read your Bible in weeks. We're going to have to show the real sins and the real struggles we deal with. That is, if we really want help, better to open up and let others in in hopes of actually seeking to grow in holiness than seeming to be holy. It's hard to fake like you're righteous, isn't it? I did that for 26 years of my life. Trying to be this kind of spiritual person, acting like mom <laughs> want me to act, going to church, you know, like, and my mother knew who I was. <laughs> Inside, I knew who I was, right? Well, young people, don't do that. The Lord knows who you are. Amen. Older folks, don't do that. Might as well let your mess out now so the Lord can heal you. He knows who you and I are. He would either judge us accordingly, or draw us near to him, if we call out him. The seventh and last word that Jesus pronounces is in verses 29 through 36. Jesus Amen. pronounces judgment upon the religious leaders because they built monuments for the prophets, acting like they esteemed them. They claim they never have taken part in their forefathers' sins in putting Israel's prophets of old to death. But in fact... They have not only resumed their forefathers' actions, but they bring it to a head. They culminate all their actions. Verse 32 says they will fill up or complete the measure of their fathers. How? Because in just a few days, they would put God's very son to death. They would murder the messiah. And after him, Jesus says in verse 34, they will kill and crucify and persecute all those that Jesus tasked to carry on his mission, his 12 disciples and many other faithful followers who would be martyred for his name. In that way, all the blood of all the saints from all times past would be on their heads. From the first person killed in the Old Testament, Abel, Abel, to the last person killed in the Old Testament, Zechariah. They would be guilty of all of it because of the greater and most supreme guilt of killing the one whom all the prophets and all the righteous men pointed to, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Woe to you, Jesus says, for you murder God's messengers. You murder the Messiah. Friends, so have we. We are guilty of killing God's Son too. How? Because it was our sins, our rebellion against God that put Jesus on the cross. If you listen closely and unclog your ears, you hear your voice among the mockers calling out of the cross, yelling, God, crucify him! Crucify him! Friends, that's what our sin says. Kill God so I can live my life. Kill Jesus so I can live the life I want to live. How do you think God will respond? The way he responds to the scribes and Pharisees here with judgment. Woe to you. The blood of murdering the righteous one will be on your hands. And what will be the result? Look back there at the end of verse 33. You will be sentenced to hell. Eternal separation and suffering from God. Friends, the cumulative weight of these seven woes is meant to shake us up to keep us from being deceived into thinking like the scribes and pharisees that any amount of religion will save us from god's wrath it can't it won't religion won't save you only jesus can do that so don't be hard-hearted in rejecting your savior that's our third and final point don't be hard-hearted in rejecting god's savior you might think that in a passage so heavy on judgment, with Jesus constantly pronouncing judgment that he actually enjoys judgment. But he doesn't. Judgment is his strange work. It's not what he delights in. Like God the Father expressed in Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So God the Son here expresses the same attitude he laments over the need to judge Jerusalem's leaders and the people who follow their lead in rejecting God's plans, rejecting God's prophets, and ultimately rejecting God's son. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says in verse 37, the city that, that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood, under her wings and you were not willing see your house has left you desolate For i tell you you will not see me again until you say blessed is he comes in the name of the lord jesus's desire was to gather up the nation of israel tenderly rescue them from the terrible dangers of sin and satan and hell Just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, protecting them from danger. Jesus wanted to do that. Jesus was was willing to save. Jesus was wanting to save. His presence on earth was proof of that. But the people were not willing to be saved. Not by him. No, they claimed to be waiting for a savior, but really were trusting in a kind of self-righteous religion to save them their own works, and their own labors for the Lord. That's what they they trusted in rather than accepting and trusting God's only provision of salvation, the work of his beloved son. And rejecting him, Jesus rejected them. You will be left empty, desolate, destroyed. He says in verse 38, and the ultimate judgment You will not see me again and come to truly understand who I am until it is too late. Verse 39, he says, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It refers to Jesus' return to earth when he will consummate his kingdom and reign as Lord over all. The Bible tells us that when he comes back, Everyone will acknowledge him for who he is. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or as Jesus says here, they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then the acknowledgement will only result in judgment. It'll be past the time of salvation. The confession will only bring sorrow. I should have trusted in him while there was time. Friends, don't let that be said of you. Don't wait until that final day to receive Jesus as Lord. Receive him today as Lord. Regard him today as your Lord and your King and your Savior. Renounce your own filthy rags of righteous deeds. Renounce your own attempts to be your own king and run to Jesus the king for salvation before it's too late. He is willing to save you. The question is, are you willing to be saved? Don't miss Jesus in favor of your own makeshift religion. For any religious duty that is miss directed and misapplied and that misses jesus will not bring rewards but only judgment let's pray lord we thank you for your word even for your warnings in your word that keep us from falling away from you that convict us of the sins that would separate us from you even now Lord, we pray that you would use your word, Lord, to, to draw us nearer to King Jesus in submission and faith. Uh, Lord, to cause us to see the ugliness of our sins, to confess them to others and to you and to repent of them and to cherish Jesus Christ and all his love and all his mercy and all his grace to save sinners who would reject him, uh, to draw us in so that we would not fully and finally reject him. Lord, we pray that you would move in our hearts today. Lord, kill any attempts of our own to, to, to justify ourselves. Lord, kill any attempts of our own, Lord, to, to make ourselves look good before others. Oh, Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would live our lives to glorify King Jesus, to make him known, for he alone is God and Savior of all. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.